like to invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. We've got some great music and stories for you today for Song of the Soul. We'll be visiting with singer-songwriter and story writer Meg Barnhouse. And on top of that, Meg is also a Unitarian Universalist minister, though that's not where she started. But you'll hear a lot more about that in the course of this hour. Get ready for a great mixture of heart and head mixed with a generous dose of pluck and gumption. Meg Barnhouse joins us by phone from Austin, Texas. Meg, it's great to have you here today for Song of the Soul. Thank you, Mark. I'm excited about it. I'm talking to you down in Austin, Texas. How long have you been there? We moved here last July during the middle of the hottest summer there has ever been. It got better from there. Your accent doesn't seem to be a Texan accent. No, I grew up in Philadelphia and North Carolina, and then I spent 20 years in South Carolina. So I would say probably my accent is more Carolinas than anything else. And what does that mean about your background, either musically, religiously, song of the soulishly, if you will? <laughs> song of the soulishly. Well, it means that I grew up with a lot of religious influence in terms of evangelical Christians, but not the modern evangelical kind, the kind that is extremely based on the Bible very interested in doing good work. And my mother's family is in North Carolina, but she grew up in Pakistan, or in what is now Pakistan, before it was. Her parents were missionaries there. The whole family over there in North Carolina is missionary-oriented in that they're always talking about members of the family who are missionaries or raising money for missionaries. And the Lord is in every sentence. I think the Lord wants this, or the Lord said that, or the Lord is going to do this, and you just really can't get through a whole paragraph without talking about the Lord. My dad's family in Philadelphia was, or is, a Presbyterian family. His dad was a very famous evangelical fundamentalist Presbyterian radio evangelist. He really has sermons that are still heard on the radio. They replay them, and his books are still selling at Christian bookstores. His name was Donald Barnhouse Sr. And my dad, Don Barnhouse Jr., is also a minister. He has a church up near Philadelphia. So he also likes to talk about the Bible. I think all he reads is the Bible and the London Economist. He is completely off the charts brilliant, as are his brothers and sisters. They were on the radio doing calculus when they were five years old, six years old. So he is this amazing combination of brilliant 
teacher, educator, and a person who absolutely believes that you can find wisdom in the Bible, and you really could not call him a liberal in any way when it comes to the Bible. And yet, his reading the Bible in such depth has made him, number one, a universalist, believing that God doesn't send anybody to hell, which is unusual and difficult to preach in the Presbyterian Church. And it's made him a, a rabid civil rights activist. And so he is an also a very interesting combination. So I was raised on the Lord, the Bible, the sense that your intellect was given to you by God to use. And so you should wrestle with questions and talk theology and politics at the dinner table. And my dad would look at us at the dinner table and say, this was when I was 11, 12, 13, Maggie, stand up and uh, tell us for five minutes about the situation in West Africa. And I would have, you know, <laughs> have to stand up and you know try to talk about the Hutu and the Tutsi and why they were fighting each other. And then my dad would correct and fill in the gaps and whatever, of which I had many gaps. So until I was about fifteen, when I just said, "No, I'm not doing that." So, <laughs> Is that the point at which you became a Unitarian Universalist? Oh no, I wish. I wish I didn't know anything about Unitarian Universalists because they're such shy, reserved people, unfortunately, that I didn't know anything about Unitarian Universalism until I already was through with seminary, ordained, and working as a college chaplain in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And then the Unitarians called me up and asked me to come over and give a sermon. Not one of those Presbyterian sermons, they said. We want you to learn a little about UU and give us a sermon because we've heard that you're smart and entertaining. So I studied up on UU a little bit and I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I, I believe all this stuff. I looked at their seven principles and I looked at their history and I thought, I know these people. I I know John Quincy Adams and Abigail Adams and I, I, I know Rod Serling and E.E. E. Cummings. I had no idea these people were Unitarians. I read in the back of their hymnal while I was there to preach and I went back about once a year and I just thought, these are my people. This is I found my tribe. So I was very happy to to find them and a little bit put out with them that they hadn't been evangelical enough for me to hear about them before that. So have you been able to convince the Austin you used to become evangelicals yet? Well, now I just got here, so I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on it. It really is horrifying to them, the idea, because for some reason this denomination attracts a lot of people with an introverted personality where they don't really... <laughs> You're joking, Meg. I mean, Unitarians, <laughs> they at least talk and argue and debate. You Quakers, they'll just sit there quietly and listen to you, you know? And think their own thoughts. <laughs> you know what you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with a Quaker, someone who knocks on your door and then refuses to speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I guess, so I guess, uh, yes, they, you used to argue quite a bit. They, conversation, I would say, is one of our sacraments, if we had any. Coffee and conversation. So somehow you made the leap from Presbyterian over to UU gradually. Did you have to get reordained? Did you have to go through a seminary again to lose some of uh, your previous influences? Well, no. Influences are hard to lose, but you have to just get some more and put them on top of them. And so what they give you is, or what they did give you when I was coming in, was uh, three sheets of paper with single-spaced lists on them of books that you had to read. So... There were these hundreds of books I had to read, and then you fly somewhere where the committee 
here are the capital letters. The committee is waiting there to examine you on your reading. And I did that. So I was all filled up with, with Unitarian Universalism when I, when I went before the committee and they told me I'd make a good UU minister and they gave me the stamp of approval. And music has been a part of your life journey as well. How does this overlay with your religious, spiritual progression or your, your ideas, maybe? I started writing songs when I was a teenager. Then when I was in college, I fell in with a bunch of evangelical Christians, and we had a rock band. So I would write songs for the band, and we had groupies and everything, so it was quite a good experience. Then I went to seminary and got married and had children and was working, so I didn't write any songs for a long, 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 long time. After a while, I was working with this guy named Pat, and he and I started writing songs together. We wrote about two songs together. And then we were on the radio together doing commentary, and our commentaries got put into a book, and we went on a book tour. And the first book signing at Barnes & Noble was so awful. It was awful because you know how the poor author sits there at a table with all his or her books out there, and the people give them as wide a berth as possible so they won't have to talk to them. So we decided after that first one that we were going to bring our guitars and sing at the next book signing just to entertain ourselves while nobody came over and read our book. We brought our guitars, and the singing brought people over, and so we would read a story from the book and then sing some more songs. And so I just got started writing songs again, and I haven't quit since. Well, give us an example, Meg. Well, one pastoral care song is called Chrysalis, and it talks about how you feel like things are falling apart, but maybe something else is happening. I had a director of religious education at my church where I was a minister, and she was leaving, and I knew she was nervous about going into business for herself. And so I wrote her this song, Chrysalis, about being a butterfly and spreading your wings and blossoming. I got to tell you something important You need to know You're gonna be fine They said the walls were there for protection that used to be true It's time to break through Feels like it's all falling apart What's happening? Unfurling Where do you migrate? How do you get there? When it's time to go
today for Song of the Soul with Meg Barnhouse, and that was her song, Chrysalis. Did you have your own chrysalis experiences, Meg? Oh, my, yes. When I was losing my Christian faith, it felt like all I had done was pull on a little thread of my sweater that was sticking out And in seminary, you know, everybody loses their faith, and then you get it back by your senior year, you hope, in a different form. But this happened to me not only in the usual way in seminary, but it really happened in a deep and serious way when I was in my late 30s. And I felt like the whole garment I had been wearing of a tenuously put-together Christianity, because there were a lot of places I didn't understand in the Presbyterian doctrine that I had been studying in Princeton Seminary for three years and studying really my whole life. And my husband, who was a Presbyterian minister, would he grasped it seamlessly, and I couldn't understand how it made so much sense to him. And then it would make sense to me when I would say, explain this to me again, he would explain it. And I was like, okay, I I guess I get this. But it just fell completely apart by the time I was 40. I was standing there with just yarn unformed all at my feet. And I had to pick it up and put it back together in a form that really fit me and what I believed and what made sense to me. And so I became this Unitarian Universalist really kind of a mainstream Unitarian Universalist with Christian ethics and paganish practices. I loved the earth-based sense of everything being connected and honoring the earth and the seasons and the cycles that felt really correct to me. So what I became was this Unitarian Universalist teacher, minister, a bridge, if you will, between the scientific and the mystical or the theological, at least, structural and the mystical. 
and um, I had a lot of training in Carl Jung. And then I also was extremely saturated with Bible knowledge. I won the Bible knowledge contest at Princeton Seminary. And yeah, man. <laughs> so if you want to know who Aminadab is, I can tell you, it made me eager and equipped to engage with the Christian right. And so I was happy to be in South Carolina for so long because I could talk to people who had grown up in evangelical or fundamentalist churches and speak in the language of that church and talk about universalism and how God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And I every now and then would get into a fight with a, you know, we can counsel you out of your gayness group or uh, another evangelical fundamentalist group in the town. And I could hold my own with them in terms of the battle of beliefs when you shoot Bible verses back and forth at each other. Even though I don't really respect that way of arguing, I can do it. And that made me feel useful in the world there. And, and that's one of the reasons that I chose to come to Texas rather than to stay in the Northeast because I'm more useful down here with my background and my training. I can talk to people who really literally believe in hell. Because when you talk to somebody in Boston or New York about our faith says, Unitarian means one God, Universalist means no hell, so we're in the one God, no hell church. And they go, oh, well, surely nobody believes in that literally anymore. And you go, oh, hell yes, they do all (laughs) over the place. And they're in South Carolina and Austin. Uh, and Austin, Aust- Austin wouldn't seem to me to be the perfect place to do it, because I think it's a little bit of a liberal haven. Well, you know, one has to make concessions to one's politics. I can't imagine myself anywhere else in Texas other than Austin, but just for my own comfort and for, you know, walking around peace of mind. And Austin is a great place with lots of liberals, but you just go 10 miles out of town and you got the hell people all over the place. Well, keep us going with your music. And one of the things that I know about you is that you're fairly uppity and you're humorous and you're you're not a staid serious. The description that you gave of your father does not seem your personality. I am humorous and I am also mad. And it's a good combination sometimes. Sometimes better for me than for the people around me and sometimes vice versa. But I have arguments with people, and a couple of the songs that we're playing today are arguments that I've had with folks in my head, you know, how you do it. Move Over is one of those songs where I see a TV preacher, and I see the fallout from the TV preacher's kind of preaching, and I see the people who are wounded. I see the families that are torn apart by the preacher saying, if your kid is gay, throw them out of the house because that's tough love and let them live on the street for a while and then they'll reconsider their gayness. And so I have these homeless teenagers showing up, washing up on the shores of my church in South Carolina and in Texas, people who've been tossed out of their homes because they're gay, because the preacher said you should do that. The preacher said if you're not responsible for your kid's soul, your kid is going to hell and it's on you. It is that kind of preaching that is not correct, and it is damaging and destructive and leads to oppression and injustice. And so my anger in general about ideas that lead to oppression and injustice are focused in this song, Move Over. 
We got us a preacher on channel 16. Maybe you got one with the same routine. People listen to him, get to feeling unclean. Get scared of hell and it makes them mean. You got to tell yonder preacher man to move over now. Mama, listen what that preacher's saying. Told my sister when she was in pain. You made your bed, now it's time to be laying in it. If you're real sweet, he won't hit you again. You got to tell yonder preacher man to move over now. message there. Move Over by Meg Barnhouse. She's with us today for Song of the Soul. This is Northern Spirit Radio production. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, and Meg's website is megbarnhouse.com. You can also find her because she's a minister at Austin UU, and their website is austinuu.org, of course, down in Austin, Texas. So Move Over, Meg. There's a fair amount of force in that. Is this related to you having your karate degree? <laughs> Probably. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I do feel my karate in me all the time. Even though now I'm a very old lady, 145 years old, even though I can't really torque on my knees as much as I used to, I feel the philosophical force of it and the physical force of it in how 
I approach conflict at times. I also was a family therapist for many years, and so that informs my handling of conflict more than my karate. But when I'm just singing a song just for me, I sometimes am a fairly forceful, forward-aggressing kind of I have that attitude. You know, one of my favorite books is by an Aikido master named Wendy Palmer. And she always talks about Aikido as being so different from karate in that you back up, you yield the space, you use the momentum to fall, and you use the other person's momentum to defeat them. And yet in karate, coming, somebody's coming towards you, you push back. And that is more my style, and even though I wish the Aikido way were more my style, I just don't like to fall. <laughs> I, like, I would rather push than fall, unfortunately. When I'm a better person, it'll be the other way around. You talked a little bit about how you use our, particularly the intellectual, the argumentative strain, uh, which I guess relates to your karate nature, but I also get the sense that there's a spiritual basis for you that is not universal in UU circles. I once had a generation older than me, Quaker, when asked the question, what's the difference between you, use and Quakers? He says, well, they're pretty much the same, except that Quakers believe in God. <laughs> and while that's a pretty in-your-face thing, and I certainly know Quakers who don't and Unitarians who do, how do you see the landscape that you live in there in the UU Church? Oh, it's so interesting, because you have people who were brought up in the UU Church, and so they have a certain kind of stance toward the world. And then you have people who came out of evangelical churches, like they were being shot out of a cannon, and that they were like, thank goodness, or whoever, that I'm out of that, and I don't ever want to hear about it again, and I don't ever want to hear a word that's churchy anymore. And then you have people who grew up Jewish, and they go, do you have to call it a church? Can we not just call it a congregation? Because other than some of the Christian words here, I'm really comfortable and then you have people who are like, oh, I'm a Buddhist, I just want a community of people I can talk to, and the Sangha is too far away. But what I say to all of them is, you know, we are all Unitarian Universalists, and there's a big enough corral here for all of us to be in here and call ourselves UUs rather than hyphenating, I'm a Christian UU, I'm a Buddhist UU, I'm a Hindu UU, whatever. But the way that, the, the breadth of it, the variety of spiritual paths that people choose is fascinating to me. And some people are really, they value the Christian story and they value the Christian ethics and the sense of sacrificial love being the highest value. And then there are people who are earth-based and they go, why should I turn the other cheek? I'm going to put a spell on you. And um, then you have the scientists, you know, who say, I'm, I am an astronomer and I'm sitting here next to an astrologer and I don't understand their worldview. And yet I am in the same room and I'm glad they're here and we'll have a conversation and we'll try to abide by our covenant of healthy relations, which many UU churches have now a covenant that we agree to. This is how we want to interact with each other. This is how we want to treat each other. So it's cut down on the argumentativeness somewhat in that there are so many guidelines about how to argue now that some people feel it's not worth it anymore. That whole 1970s UU sort of irascible curmudgeon, ah, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you think such a stupid thing. That is not going to happen anymore in most churches because your relationship covenant. Somebody would say, oh, I need to call you back into covenant here because that's not how we talk to each other here. 
I just find it a fascinating mix of people who say, I want to be spiritual but not religious, and people who say, let's not even call this a religion, and people who say, this is a religion, it's a faith community, and other people who say, what faith? And other people who say, I want to be spiritual, but I don't know really what that means, or I know what it means to me. We have very rich discussions with one another. They all, to a person, want to make the world a better place, which I think we all do. And so that is interesting, too. We've been having discussion this spring at my church here in Austin. We took a Quaker concept of enoughness and started talking about enoughness all spring. So we've had movies about it. We've had small group lessons about it. We've had sermons about it. What is enough for me? What is enough money? What is enough food? What is enough friends? What is enough freedom? What is enough discussion? What is enough... That's just been our question to one another all spring. It's it's really interesting group of people to have a sit-down talk with. So I'm happy. I'm very happy in this milieu. It sounds like a totally rich environment, and I certainly go for it. And it is one of the places that I visited along my way before I became a dyed-in-the-wool Quaker. But how does that sit in Texas specifically? Well, Unitarian Universalism is a perfect fit with Austin because Austin is a place where people seem to really just, they want to be happy. It's a very sociable town. People sit out on the patio under the lights and the trees and drink margaritas and have a good time. People seem to want to be happy. And that's really not the same as some places that I have been. To me, that's a spiritual stance toward the world. I want to enjoy my life. And I like that here. That's a good fit for me here. And the other thing that's here for me is my relationship with my partner, Kaya Hartwood, is almost a non-issue here. To be a gay woman is a big deal in the South. And it was an important part of my identity in South Carolina, even though I would feel its importance, you know, shrinking or growing depending on the day in terms of who I was, but here it seems to be a pretty well-accepted lifestyle and nobody really blinks. You can hold hands in the restaurant or put your arm around your partner when you're listening to music and uh, nobody's going to follow you out in the parking lot with a baseball bat and nobody's going to give you dirty looks. People just pretty much ignore any kind of, I don't want to say people ignore differences here, they just seem to have the attitude of, well, I've got my differences and you've got your differences and I'm not going to bother you, you don't bother me. We don't really celebrate each other's differences unless you're just weird in a very spectacular and entertaining way. And then you get celebrated here because the weird is uh, highly valued in Austin. It's a fun town and um, I love being here with my partner. And the song that she wrote about coming home to me or me coming home to her called The Lights of Austin is about this whole place where we've ended up and the journeys that we took to get here. It feels like home and she feels like home to me and I feel like home to her. And that is an enormous part of my spiritual stance is that I'm home. I'm in my place. My only grief is that my children are so far away but it's my earnest hope that they'll fall in love with Austin, too, and move here. That's my dream. I keep my fingers crossed. But I feel 
really home here and I feel that this is my job that I'm supposed to have and I'm supposed to be here and I have things to learn here and I'm going to have fun here and Austin is a big part of the spirited life for me right now.
you're listening to Meg Barnhouse's Song of the Soul. That song was Lights of Austin, and she was in there, although Kaya was also in there. Kaya Hartwood was in there as part of that song. Is this off of her recording, or is this your recording? This is from her album called Bold Swimmer, which is a quote from Walt Whitman. But she had just made a CD while, when we got here and um, with a guy named Mark Hallman, who's a great producer. And so he's mostly singing back up for her. This is her song. She wrote it. And um, she just invited me to sing back up a little bit on this song in her, on her CD. So I chose one of her songs because her music has been a very important part of our relationship and it's part of my spiritual life just in that I love listening to her sing and I love her poetry and I love the way she thinks about things and the way she talks about things. When we go to one of her gigs, I like watching people listen and watching their faces soften and watching their hearts open up and watching them feel stirred and inspired and that's a fun part of my life too. Isn't it such a gift to have someone who reaches those parts inside us as such a dear close loved one? That's just an amazing gift in life. How did you go from being a God-fearing, Bible-believing Presbyterian to being a God-hating gay lesbian? (laughs) I mean, there's something about that transition I didn't pick up. You had a husband last, I recall, and then all this husband and kids, and then all of a sudden you're with this wonderful woman, Kaya. I'm still, I'm still stuck on uh, God hating. <laughs> Obviously, I, that's not my view, and, and uh, unfortunately, I do know people who think that way. Oh, I know it's crazy. I don't feel like I've changed that much, but because I always have been in love with God, and when I was being taught that God loves us in spite of our flaws, which is a very Presbyterian way of looking at things, I felt like my love was unrequited, kind of, that God loved me like God loved everybody else, but uh, I wanted to be loved because I was fabulous. So it, it really made me feel chagrined and disappointed to be loved like everybody else and in spite of who I was. That didn't seem fun to me. And so as I did more and more spiritual work and journaling and prayer and meditation and body movement and just lived my life, raised my children, I was getting more and more progressive in my beliefs, which I always had been pretty much on the progressive end of Christianity, but I I began to progress really over the line. And as I told you, it just unraveled. I just felt every morning when I woke up, there were fewer and fewer hard beliefs, certainties in my head until really I began celebrating the female face of God, and that detached me from the historical view of God. And I began to think, well, if God could be female in her aspect, then maybe God can be also tree-like or rock-like, and the personhood of God began to fade for me. Or you could look at it as the being of God began to expand for me into every cell of the universe. And I thought, well, God is in everything. I don't think that I believe there's anything God is not in. For a while when you say that, you see kind of dolphins swimming in the sunset. But then you think, okay, well, is God in a cancer cell? Is God in the destructive aspects of nature? And I have to think, yes, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. I don't believe that there's a devil fighting God. I think that God is in everything. 
and that there is a place even for cancer cells. I don't want it to be in me or in anybody I love, and yet it has been. My mother died of breast cancer, and what she said at the end, she was a very strong Christian, she said, Maggie, everything that happens to me is good because it's from God. And at the time, I was in my early 20s, I wanted to fight and argue with that, and now I kind of understand what she means. And so that is part of why I sing my song, All Will Be Well, because I believe that God is in everything and that God is love. And so what that means, logically, is that there is also love in those things which destroy us. I don't understand that all the way. I don't know how that could be. And yet I know my faith is that love is the only thing that lasts forever and everything else fades away. And so really in the end, there'll be nothing but love. That's my faith. And so all will be well. I said, Julian, you are holy. You are holding my hand. And Julian, you are holy. You are holding my hand. She said, all will be well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. I said, Julian, do you not know? Do you not know about sorrow? And Julian, do you not know? Do you not know?
words from many centuries ago, All Will Be Well. The song is by Meg Barnhouse, but the quote, of course, comes from Julian of Norwich, who spoke during the Black Plague and during people dying. You know, I mean, at that time, I think, isn't it true, Meg, that perhaps a third or a quarter of the population of Europe died of the plague at that point? It took some real pluck on Julian's part, or, or a real vision on her part, to say that all will be well. It did. That wasn't everybody's outlook at all. (laughs) Not at all. I'm sure there were a lot of people saying, oh, the end times are here. This is what was in the book of Revelation. Oh, of course, but there are always people who say that. But yeah, I, I think sometimes you feel really stupid saying all will be well. It's a real act of faith to believe that, and sometimes it seems completely obvious. A number of people, an increasing number in our country, have decided, no, I'm not part of any of these groups. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a UU. I'm a, I'm a nothing. I'm myself. I'm out here individually. What kept you in this wrestling match with faith? That's a great question. I really believe that it is difficult to have a rich spiritual journey just by yourself, that If you don't have people who disagree with you nearby, or if you don't have people who will say, what, huh, what do you mean by that nearby, then you don't ever get the depth that you get when you do wrestle with people, when you do have people who are really difficult to get along with, and yet there they are in your life, and you have to endure their quirks or begin to tolerate rather than endure or begin to feel affection rather than tolerance of their quirks or where you have people calling you back into your best self. And that is a never pleasant experience. So I think that being in a spiritual community is a lot like being in a beehive. You have one bee by yourself. Theoretically, you can make honey, but really you're not going to make honey by yourself. You've got to have your buddies around and you got to have the queen bee and you got to have your purpose and you've got to have the structure and you don't always, I, well, I have no idea whether bees enjoy their work or not, but you just hum along and you're in 
with other folks and you, you're part of a fire rather than a single spark, which can go out pretty easily. And a fire is hard to blow out, as they say. I think being in a spiritual community, whether it be Unitarian Universalist or Quaker or Methodist or Lutheran, I think it's uh, really important to do that and to find a community where you can believe in them and they can believe in you, where they don't love you in spite of who you are. <laughs> they love you because of who you are. I, I heard a great quote from an Amishman once, and he said, uh, speaking of some other Amish folks or part of his community, he said, it's a good thing that I have to love them for my religion because I don't always like them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and isn't that always true with family? I mean, they're there and they're a part of you, and it takes a lot to break that bond. Sometimes you have to, unfortunately, but you always choose a new family and then you have to love them. And so, yeah, exactly. Give us another tune. Give us another sample of your wonderful music. And I really do love your music, Meg. Oh, thank you, Mark. Really glad. I wanted you to play a song that I wrote for my two sons because really we're ending up here with the most important thing in my life, which is my boys. I feel so privileged to be in a family with them, and uh, they're really lovely men. I wrote this for them when they were little boys, you know, like nine and seven, and I said, I wrote you a song, and I sang it for them, and they were like, oh, okay, thanks, Mom. <laughs> and then they, you know, they're out to climb the tree again. <laughs> I, I know that, that reaction from the young kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now they listen to it and they know what it means. And having been a mother or being a mother now still, although it feels very different from when they needed me on a daily moment-to-moment basis, being a mother has been a most wonderful part of my life. I enjoyed it from the minute I got pregnant. I really liked being pregnant and I loved having babies. And it was hard work. And sometimes, you know, you feel like, this is too much. I can't believe this baby cares so little about whether I sleep or not. And then for them growing up and becoming their own people until now they live in South Carolina and I live in Texas. It feels so far away, but I feel them always in my heart and talk to them a lot on the phone, which is fine. And I cry when I see children on TV because I think, oh, I don't have children like that age anymore. But one of them is married and his wife is pregnant. And so we're going to have a little grandbaby here pretty soon. And that's going to be really fun. The relationship with my own kids has just been an enormous blessing to me in my life. Bigger than a valentine, bigger than a throne for a queen, bigger than a truck full of feathers bound from New Orleans, bigger than a mountain in Peru where the Amazon starts, bigger than the sky in Nebraska, your place in my heart. Not as little as a prairie wind, not as little as a forest fire, not as little as the thrill of a race that comes down to the wire, not as little as a May afternoon, not as little as a story that's true, not as little as a Milky Way is my love for you. Sweeter than strawberry jam, Sweeter than a yellow rose, sweeter than the feel of a baby when you play with its toes, sweeter than a song you can sing when you're no more than three, sweeter than a dream about flying, yes, 
your love for me. Another beautiful song from Meg Barnhouse. Her website is megbarnhouse.com. That was Your Place in My Heart. How many recordings do you have out there, Meg? I just have two CDs, two of music and one CD of me reading my stories. In fact, I have a story that's about being a young mother that I'd like to read if we have time. I'd love to include one of your stories, but I can see that our time is running out. So let's include your story, The Broken Buddha, but we'll include it as an excerpt to this program on the northernspiritradio.org website. So listeners, tune into the site and hear The Broken Buddha. You can find the six books Meg's written, her two CDs of music, and her CD of stories on her website, megbarnhouse.com. Meg, I love your stories, I love your music, and I love your light shining there in Austin, Texas. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Meg, for joining me for Song of the Soul. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org and I invite you to share your song of the soul with my listeners just contact me via my website and please join me weekly for song of the soul you can be